The pitch. Foul ball down the left field line. Moses Alou leads. A fan got the way. Oh, my God. These are the tales of baseball past as you've never heard them before. Our guests tell stories blending team seasons, on and off diamond moments, memories of personal fandom catastrophe and elation, and yes, alcohol. We do the work, you tell the story. These are the basis stories. I'm Al Yellen, and I'm going to tell you the story of the 2003 Chicago Cubs. I'm the managing editor at BleedCubbyBlue.com. I lived through this season, which uh, had a lot of highs and lows and definitely a low at the end. But let me start at the beginning. Um, The 2002 Cubs lost 95 games. They were bad. I mean, very bad. And I don't know that there were a lot of expectations for the 2003 team until the Cubs hired Dusty Baker, um, who had kind of inexplicably been let go by the Giants after he led them to the World Series. Uh, Of course, the Giants had a chance to win the World Series, uh, leading in the seventh inning of game six and blew a five to nothing lead, wound up not winning in 2002. That may be the reason that the the Giants didn't retain Dusty Baker. But Baker at that time had a great reputation. Uh, It was it was all it was viewed as a great hire. And so people were optimistic about that. The other thing that happened in the 2002-03 offseason is that um, the Cubs made a trade that I don't think anybody expected them to be able to make. They managed to trade Todd Hundley to the Dodgers for Eric Karros and Mark Redzelanek. Uh Todd Hundley had come to the Cubs from the Mets in 2001 with high expectations. He was the, the son of a beloved former Cub, Randy Hundley. He'd had some good years with the Mets, and he was an absolute flop with the Cubs. He hit poorly. Uh, was perceived as having a bad attitude, and you know everybody was desperate, hoping the Cubs could get rid of him. And not only did they get rid of him, but they made a, an excellent trade in, in acquiring uh, Grzelanek and Karos, both of whom were um, key contributors to the 2003 division winners. The other real uh, key acquisition that, acquisitions that were made during the 2003 season, uh, not quite at the trade deadline, but close after the Cubs had fallen out of first place in late June and were kind of floundering around near 500. Uh, they traded a couple of spare parts to the Pirates and they got Aramis Ramirez and Kenny Lofton, um, which from my understanding was a total salary dump by the by the Pirates that the Pirates had basically been, Pirates GM uh, Dave Littlefield had just been basically told, just get rid of these contracts. And so the Cubs were willing to take on the, the contracts of Ramirez and Lofton and those Guys turned out to be key contributors. They gave up Jose Hernandez and a couple of minor leaguers who never made it. So that was one of the better trades in, in the recent Cubs history. And, you know, with those guys and, and a solid pitching staff led by Kerry Wood and, and Mark Pryor and Carlos Sombrano, um, were able to um, come back from being in second place most of the second half. They didn't really go back into first place in uh, in the division until almost the end of the season. They had to win some games at home late in the season uh, to to take over first place with only about a week left. And they hung on at, at the very end, swept a doubleheader from the Pirates on the last Saturday of the season to clinch the division title and, and head on into the division series with, with, the, uh, with the Atlanta Braves. 
So um, the first real sign that anything good was going to happen was opening day when the, when the uh, Cubs beat the Mets 15 to two in New York. Um, and uh, Corey Patterson, who was you know supposed to be the next big star of the Cubs, uh, drove in seven of those runs. So that was kind of an indication that maybe this would be a better year. The Cubs did go into first place uh, in mid-April and, and stayed there uh, pretty much until close to the end of June when they started flopping. And of course, you know, as Cubs fans, we had seen so many of these years that, you know, June swoon had become kind of a part of the Cubs lexicon. So, you know, some people were thinking, yeah, this is just going to be another one of those. I, I want to tell you the story of a game that it does not appear in the, in the record uh, on, on Mother's Day, which was May 11th. They played the, uh, they were playing what was supposed to be the last of a three game series at Wrigley Field against the Cardinals. They had split the last two games. The weather was just atrociously bad. It was it was in the mid forties, uh, moderate rain and and wind. And they decided to play anyway. And of course, balls started flying out of the yard. Uh, it was eleven to nine after four innings. And then uh, Eli Morero, who was playing right field for the Cardinals, tripped on the wet grass, hurt his ankle, and he was never quite the same player after that game. They probably shouldn't have played it at all. Yeah, you you probably remember that, Jeremy. Yeah. But they called the, you know, they had played four innings in these horrendous conditions. And then they decided to call the game off with, you know, just get one more inning in and you're, you know, you're golden. You can, you know, you have an official game. But they they called the game off after uh after four innings. So it had to be made up as part of a doubleheader in September. And you know, I'll tell you about that in a minute. But that's uh that's uh that's a key story that wound up being a five-game series against the Cardinals at Wrigley in September. Uh, in, in early June, the Cubs were playing the uh, Tampa Bay then Devil Rays at Wrigley Field, and Sammy Sosa hit a, a ball, um, and his bat broke. And the, the bat, pieces of the bat were picked up, and it appeared that the bat had been corked. Hmm. And Sam claimed that this was just a batting practice bat that he had accidentally used in a game, and he wound up being suspended for, for a couple of games as a, as a result of using that bat. Maybe he corked, maybe not corked bat. Uh, right, right after that, the um, the Yankees came to Wrigley Field, and um, it was the first time in the league play that that the Yankees had, had visited Wrigley. So that was a big, highly anticipated game. I, I remember ticket prices uh, on the secondary market went through the roof because all these Yankee fans were coming from New York to see you know to see their team uh, in, in kind of a new venue. Um, and the, the Yankees won the first game of the series, and then the the, the second game was a was a marquee pitching matchup that was getting really hyped between Kerry Wood and Roger Clemens. Um, in the middle innings of that game, somebody hit a pop up, and I, I can't remember who at this time, but Kerry Wood and Hesop Choi, who was playing first base for the Cubs, collided, um, and Choi was knocked out. I mean, to the point where an ambulance actually had to drive onto the field at Wrigley to pick him up and take him to the hospital. And he was never quite the same player after that concussion. But anyway, they resumed play of the game, and uh, Eric Karros had a three-run homer off Clemens in, in the late innings to win that game 5-2. to two. So that, you know, that was kind of a game where, where people thought, well, hey, you know, we you know, beat the vaunted Yankees. They weren't in first place at the time, but only a game out. So, you know, people were thinking, you know, maybe there, maybe there is something here to these Cubs. Uh, right after the... Um, Right after the series against the Yankees, the Cubs went to play a series in Baltimore. And I, I went to that series 
Um, and I brought my, my two small kids. They were then small along. So, I mean, it was, it's, it was very hot and humid. This is early June in Baltimore. And, the, you know, the first two games were played without storms. But the third day, there were storms. It was raining, raining, raining. They played two innings and it rain delayed. The rain delay had gotten a couple of hours. And, you know, I had two small kids with me. So we decided to leave, which, you know, normally I wouldn't do. Um, and of course, about 20 minutes after we left the stadium, they started playing again and we're outside and can't get back in. So, you know, I thought we were staying in Washington because it was also doing the, you know, touristy things in DC. So, you know, trying to figure out, and, and, um, you could take a train from DC to Baltimore for the games, but it was a commuter train and it stopped running after seven 30. So if you were going to the game and you want to go back to DC, they brought buses to take you back to DC, but the buses didn't leave until the game was over. So now I'm stranded in Baltimore with two small <laughs> kids and no way to get back. So somehow I'm walking around with these two kids and I ran run into a bunch of Cubs fans and, you know, they, you know, I'm wearing Cubs clothes. They're wearing Cubs clothes. They said, come with me. We know how to do this. So we got on this, <laughs> uh, this light rail line in Baltimore that um, took us to the BWI airport. Um, which was, would have been fine because we could have gotten on the, gotten on some local train line to get back into DC from BWI, but it was too late. The local line was closed. So now it's 1130 and <laughs> we're sitting at the, this airport and the, uh, we all, there were seven of us. We all piled into a taxi. They drove us back into, into DC we got back at 1230 in the morning. These people were, you know, so nice to me and my kids. They wouldn't even let me pay my share of the cab fare. And my son, who was how old was about uh, eight at the time, thought it was the greatest adventure of his life. And it probably was <laughs> at that time. So that was my trip to Baltimore in 2003. The Cubs won a game. So I guess I didn't mind missing the end of it that much. Yeah, that's a that's a great story. Um you know, moving on to later in the season, uh, they kind of were kind of floundering around 500 when the the trade for Lofton and and Ramirez was made, and right after that trade, they they went to uh, Miami to play the Marlins, and won games by 16 to two and 15 to six. So, you know, again, the Cubs offense started picking up, and people were thinking, well, you know, maybe these trades were worth were worth making. Um, and I mentioned the. Um, in in early September, in early September, then they had the makeup game for this. Uh, what we we actually call that May rainout. We uh, some of us in the bleachers call that the typhoon game because that's kind of what it felt like being out in a typhoon with all the wind. So they made up that game as part of a doubleheader on um, the day on the day after Labor Day. It was originally supposed to be a four game series, turned into a five game series. Uh, the Cubs had won the first game of the series seven to nothing. They won the uh, then they won the first game of the doubleheader in 15 innings when uh, Sammy Sosa hit a walk off home run in the bottom of the 15th. The second game, there was a, an interesting incident that um, could have maybe become critical later on. Um, they were trailing. The, the game was scoreless in the. Um, in the seventh inning when um, yeah, the Cardinals were leading one to nothing and um, a fly ball was hit to uh, 
to left field and um, it was called, there was a, a, one of the Cubs pitchers came out of the bullpen or, or you know, let, let me scratch this because I, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of blanking on the memory of this, but in any case, the Cardinals won that second game two to nothing. Um, and but then the Cubs won uh, the next day, uh, eight to seven. That was a day that was, I believe that was the day that Tony Larusa and, and Dusty Baker got into a shouting match between dugouts. Those two never really did like each other. And, you know, that came up again during the playoffs this year when they managed against each other with the White Sox and, and the Astros. Uh, but it, it, you know, that feud dated back to 2003 uh, when, when uh, LaRusso was managing the Cardinals and, and Baker was managing the Cubs, the um, in the, um, in the, uh, I'm trying to think this was the, not the last game of the series, but the game they won eight to seven, the Cardinals had taken a six to nothing lead in, in the, into the bottom of the sixth inning. And the Cubs came back with, uh, with eight runs, including home runs by uh, Ramirez and Moises Alou and uh, Alex Gonzalez and won eight to seven. Then they won the next game, seven to six. So they took four out of five in that, in that five game series. And that to to me, as a Cubs fan, that was really uh, started the turnaround. Those, those, um, the last two wins of that series were the first two of a six-game winning streak that put them back into first place, and the, the last of that six-game winning streak was a um, was a game against the Montreal Expos, but it was in Puerto Rico, and I actually went to Puerto Rico to see those those games. I thought that would be a cool place to to see baseball and. Um, you know, they got a pretty full houses at, at, at those games, a lot, you know, a lot of locals from Puerto Rico. But what I found out later was that a large part portion of that crowd were people who had taken the short flight from the Dominican Republic to see Sammy Sosa play. Um, uh, the Cubs actually wound up losing two out of three to the Expos in that, in that series in Puerto Rico and fell back out of first place. But then they came home and started winning again. They swept a series from the Mets. They were still in second place. Uh, they went to Pittsburgh and split a doubleheader. They didn't go into first back in the first place until um, the first game of a series against the Reds in Cincinnati on September 23rd, when uh, Kerry Wood shut out the shut out the Reds six to nothing. And then the next day in Cincinnati, Sean Estes, who had been pretty bad all year for the Cubs, threw a sh- another shutout against the Reds. And uh, they did not. Then they came home and swept that doubleheader from the Pirates on the last. Uh, Saturday of the season that clinched the division title uh, when when the Brewers beat Houston, and then the final day of the season, uh, which of course was you know a meaningless game, the Cubs started a bunch of guys who you know the, the typical day after clinching lineup, but also on that day, that day the the Cubs held the ceremony to retire Ron Sano's number. Uh, Sano had been denied entry to the Hall of Fame a number of times, and you know of course he eventually did did get elected, uh, you know, two years after he passed away in 2012. But um, in 2003, uh, the Cubs decided to give him this number retirement ceremony. And he gave a, he gave a speech in which he said, this, this means more to me than the hall of fame. This is my hall of fame. And, uh, you know, of course, eventually he did get in. So that, you know, that to me, that's the summary of the, um, of the 2003 season. It's, it's many of those, those, those four big acquisitions of Grizzlonic, Caros, uh, Ramirez, and Lofton, those were four key players uh, who they probably would not have won the division with. Uh, the reason they wanted Kenny Lofton is because Corey Patterson, who was actually having a very good season, 
as I said, supposed to be the next big Cubs star, uh, had had uh, torn a hamstring uh, in early July and was out for the rest of the season. So they were desperately looking for a center fielder and Lofton became available. So it turned out to be, you know, it was too bad that Patterson got hurt, but they managed to replace him with a player who was, if not just as good, might have even been a little better. Um, you know, pretty steady throughout the season, like nothing amazing month-wise until you get to September and then they go on that. Yeah, the 19th, really the 19 and 8 September is what did it. And, and I think a lot of people did credit Dusty Baker for keeping the team on an even keel. Um, he was very, um, you know, he was very much, even though they had fallen out of first place, he, I remember him as being very much like, you know, this is not a problem. We know how to do this. We're good. We're, you know, you guys are good players and, you know, you can do this. And he always very positive. Uh, that was one. he was, he's always been known as a player's manager. Um, and that, that was one thing. One of the things that he had in 2003 that, that he did not have after because they got rid of some of the players was to have good clubhouse player leaders like like Eric Karos and also Damian Miller, who was the uh, primary catcher in 2003. You know, since Baker was kind of a player's manager, a hands-off guy, the, the, the Cubs or any, really any of his teams need guys like that in order to succeed. They had them in 2003. Both Miller and uh, Karos were gone after that, and that was one of the reasons that the 2004 Cubs failed is because – they they added players to that team like Mike Remlinger and uh, Todd Walker, who were kind of known as you know what they call clubhouse lawyers, and that team fell apart because they in part because they just didn't have any player leadership, which they really needed with Baker as a manager. These last two that I found interesting are extra inning games going eight and three, um, and then one run games. You know, were obviously pretty important there, going ten games over. So. Joe Borowski was the closer for the Cubs in in two thousand three, and you know we used to call him Lunch Bucket Joe because he was um, he was not you know the typical closer who threw ninety five miles an hour. He was kind of just like an ordinary guy who he'd been with multiple organizations. He you know. Uh, didn't stick in the major leagues till he was past 30. And, you know, he kind of became closer out of necessity and he wound up closing games very well. Um, and that's one of the reasons for that 27 and 17 record in, in one run games. One of the things the Cubs did in 2003 that I think to their infinite was to their infinite regret was Rod Beck had been their closer in 1998 and, uh, you know, did an outstanding job for them. They wound up, uh, they wound up letting him go as a free agent Um no, they went up trading him because he had apparently been injured at the end of 1998 and didn't tell anybody. So, you know, he tried to pitch through that at the beginning of 1999 and wound up having to have elbow surgery. Later came back, they traded him away. I uh, wound up having some good years in uh, somewhere else, I think maybe San Diego, or maybe that was later. But anyway, uh, they signed him to a minor league deal in at the beginning Sounds of 2003. Right. Yeah, so... Um, you know, Side note, right back... I, I always remembered Rod Beck because he looks like a walrus. <laughs> and, you know, Rod Beck died at age 38. He's He's been gone for 14 years. Wow. It's crazy. Oh, anyway, you know, no, you know, he was with the Red Sox. He's, he <laughs> was traded to the Red Sox and had some decent years for them in uh, 2000, 2001. Then he was out of baseball in 2002. The Cubs signed him to a minor league deal the beginning of 2003 and sent him to their AAA team in Iowa. And he took his RV with him. 
And he parked it behind the scoreboard at the stadium in Des Moines. And he basically lived there for a couple of months. And he had an opt-out clause awesome. at, at, the, at the beginning of June. The Cubs didn't call him up. And he opted out and wound up, wound up signing with the Padres, for whom he had a really good year uh, in 2003 at uh, 178 ERA and 20 saves. So, you know, when it push came to shove, yes, Joe Borowski was the closer. They didn't need him at the time. But when it came to the postseason, they could have used Rod Beck in 2003. So they made a big mistake by letting him opt out. They should have called him up to the major league team. Pitching staff led the league um, in strikeouts and had, you know, a decently sizable gap of 100 strikeouts more than any other team. I thought that was right. Sad. And it's, it, it's uh, you know, now, of course, strikeouts are a thing everywhere in baseball. But then uh, to have a staff like that, you know, that was, I believe, that set a major league record for strikeouts that stood until the last few years. Uh, but between Kerry Wood and Mark Pryor and Carlos Zambrano, I mean, those guys just struck out everybody. You know, Kerry Wood led the led the league in strikeouts his rookie year in 1998 when he was uh, when he was rookie of the year. Then he missed all of 99 with Tommy John surgery. But, you know, he came back in 2001 and had a pretty good year uh, back then um, in 2002. Um, this is I'll never forget this. 2002, you know, not the pitcher wins mean that much anymore. But um, he won 12 games in 33 starts. And I remember noting at the time that, and this is one of the reasons the 2002 Cubs were so bad, is because they had a terrible bullpen. Kerry Wood left seven games with a lead in the seventh inning or later, and the Cubs lost all of them. <laughs> so, I mean, that, that's why, that's one reason why the 2002 Cubs were so bad. But, you know, he led the league in strikeouts in, in 2003 with 266. Um, he, at one time, Kerry Wood did have the, um, the all-time major league record for, uh, strikeouts per nine innings. Uh, that course changed when, now that we've had these relievers who strike out 15 guys per nine innings, but, um, you know, he was, that was hall of fame talent that Kerry Wood had. Um, you know, unfortunately the injuries prevented him from becoming the pitcher he could have. He did wind up coming back to the Cubs. Um, after some injuries and, and being a decent closer for them in 2007 and 2008. It's one of the reasons the Cubs won the uh, NL Central in 2008, because Wood, Wood was a very good closer that year uh, with 34 saves. But, um, you know, that's a guy who could have been, you know, like Nolan Ryan. That's that's the kind of talent he had because Wood also, you know, his control wasn't great. He walked a lot of guys, but so did Nolan Ryan. Um, you know, that's the kind of talent he had. But unfortunately, the injuries, uh, you know, wrecked his career, which is really a shame. He's still one of the most uh, beloved Cubs from that era, even though um, they, uh, you know, they didn't win anything with him. And until the last, uh, until the last postseason runs by the Cubs starting in 2015, he was the first Cub to appear in four postseasons for the team since the 1930s. Because he was, he played in the postseason for the Cubs in '98 and 2003 and '07 and '08. Are we? You think we're ready to hop into the playoffs here? Sure. Yeah. What were your thoughts? Confidence level headed into an L NLDS series against the Braves. Um, you know, obviously with with what Maddox and Smoltz and. And, you know, a good, good pitching staff there as always. Um, 
Um, you know, the Braves had the uh, the best record in the league with 101 wins. <clears throat> they had the pitching staff that you're talking about. But, you know, I mean, we all felt that the Cubs had a pitching staff that could match with that, uh, with, with Wood Pryor and, and Zambrano. Um, they, they wound up going to Atlanta and winning the first game behind Kerry Wood. Um, they lost this game. They lost game two. Um, which, you know, anytime you go, you go into a, a, a playoff series without home field and you can win one game at the other guy's park, well, then you've essentially taken home field advantage back. So that, you know, that was all, we were really happy about that, that they were, you know, that they came back to Chicago and, um, and won the, uh, had won one game. They won game three. That was a, that was a, um, that was a matchup that was very highly anticipated. Greg Maddox. Uh, the former Cub was was the starter for for the uh, Braves against Mark Pryor. You know, supposedly the you know, in some ways the new Maddox. Uh, but the Cubs scored two runs off of Maddox in the first inning of, of Game Three and held on to win five to three. So people were very optimistic about um, winning Game Four and taking the series in four games and not having to go back to Atlanta. Um, they took a one to nothing lead early. But then, uh, and that was, uh, it, it took a one to nothing lead early. Uh, but then the uh, the Braves started hitting Matt Clement. Um, you know, Matt Clement was a good fourth starter, but that's that's basically all he was. Um, you know, the Cubs did uh, make attempt to come back in that game. Uh, they were trailing 6-2, to, uh, six to two going to the bottom of the eighth. Um, when uh, Eric Karros hit a home run to make it 6-3, to three. Uh, the Cubs did wind up uh, making it six to four in the bottom of the ninth, and had the uh, had the tying run at the plate with nobody out. But uh, John Smoltz, the Braves closer, um, uh, retired the next three hitters to to end Game Four. So, you know, going to a decisive Game Five in Atlanta, uh, Wood on the mound again. And um, what I remember most about that night is that uh, I was watching at a friend's house. Um, and my, one of my friends was so nervous. He went and stood in the hallway outside the room where we were watching. He said he couldn't, in the last couple of innings, he couldn't watch at all. So, um, when they finally, uh, did finish, finish off the win, they're leading five to one going into the bottom of the ninth. I mean, I was pretty confident all except my one friend were confident. And, uh, Joe Borowski came in. Retired Chipper Jones, Javi Lopez, and Andrew Jones got Andrew Jones to strike out for the last out. And, you know, this is the first postseason series the Cubs have won in 95 years. It was pretty significant. So I called another friend of mine and who had not been able to join us that night. And he picks up the phone. And the first thing I hear, he says, what do you want? I said, it could have been somebody else. He says, I know it was you. So, yeah, I mean, he knew I would be calling him right after that. And then I remember driving home and cars were honking on the street, um, up and down the street, uh, almost all the way home because this was such a big deal. So, yeah, that was a big deal to win the first playoff series in 95 years. That was that was important. And to beat the Braves, who had beat them in in a division series in 1998. Yeah. And even to finish it off the the way that you described there going through uh, what Chipper Jones, Javi Lopez, Andrew Jones, like the mm -hmm. core of, of that offensive team and kind of that Braves generation as well. For sure. Yeah. So, you know, that gave everybody, uh, every Cubs fan, quite a bit of optimism going into the championship series. You know, the Marlins were a wild card team. 
Um, even though they had a better record than the Cubs did uh, that year, I think everybody thought the Cubs were a better team, had better pitching, uh, had a more solid offense. You know, we were all very optimistic. And, you know, the Cubs scored, Cubs scored four runs in the first inning of game one. Uh, you know, that, that had, that had obviously the crowd uh, excited, you know, a four run lead right away. And then two innings later, they're down five to four. Um, you know, Carlos Sombrano gave up uh, three home runs in that third inning. Uh, so the Cubs are only trailing by one. They went down six to four in the sixth. Uh, in the bottom of the sixth, um, Alex Gonzalez hit a two-run homer to tie the game. And then uh, the, the Marlins took a, 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 an eight to six lead going into the bottom of the ninth. And I mean, I... I've been to Wrigley Field a number of times where I felt it was loud. One of the loudest was when Sammy Sosa homered in the bottom of the ninth uh, with a runner on base to with two out to tie the game at 6-6. At and, you know, uh, unfortunately, uh, Mike Lowell hit a home run off Mark Guthrie in the top of the 11th to uh, give the Marlins a 9-8 lead. They actually loaded the bases uh, in the uh, in the top of the eleventh, but couldn't score again. But then the uh, you know the Cubs couldn't score in the bottom of the eleventh uh, and lost uh, nine to eight. The next day is a is a game that um, a lot of Cubs fans feel was mismanaged by Dusty Baker. The Cubs had uh, an eleven to nothing lead after five innings. Uh, they just absolutely pounded. Um, Rick Helling and Brad Penny um, in that game uh, early on. They had home runs from Sosa, Ramirez, uh, Alex Gonzalez had two home runs. So it's an 11 0 lead. Why are you leaving Mark Pryor in this game to throw pitch after pitch after pitch? Uh, Baker left him in to throw seven innings and threw 116 pitches. There was no need for that. Um, Pryor should have probably been, you know, now, of course, Baker, you know, you, you look at how he managed this year's World Series. And, of course, baseball is different now. We have openers. We have starters that don't go more than four innings. And it appears he's learned his lesson because he managed this year's World Series differently than that, even though Houston didn't win. But back then, you know, Baker was accused of ruining Mark Pryor and Kerry Wood's arms. I don't know that that's entirely true. Uh, you know, Wood had an injury history before Baker managed the team. Uh, he also had uh, he also had a, 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 a uh, um, both he and Pryor had uh, uh, pitching motions that were probably going to result in injury regardless. And also, you know, the reason Mark Pryor's career was ruined was not Dusty Baker. It was the fact I'm still convinced of this. In 2005, uh, sometime in May. He had a line drive go off, hit by Brad Hop of the Rockies, go off his elbow, his pitching elbow. And I saw that when I saw that happen, I thought this could be a season ender, if not a career ender. And they had him back pitching in four weeks. So I think he may have changed, maybe subtly altered his motion uh, to try and come back and pitch and win. And uh, Pryor's career ended with shoulder problems, not elbow problems. So I don't think that was Baker's fault. But it was Baker's fault to not take Mark Pryor out earlier than the eighth inning of this game that they were leading 11 to nothing and wound up winning 12 to three. Um, that was, 
it's almost unforgivable, really, that uh, that Baker didn't that Baker left prior in because that could have had some impact on him in the fateful game six that happened a few days later. In game three uh, in Miami, which I also went to, um, the Cubs had a, uh, a four to three lead going to the bottom of the eighth. Um, but um, the Marlins tied it up and sent that game in extra innings. The Cubs wound up winning in the 11th uh, by scoring a run on a triple by Doug Glanville, um, who had been a Cubs number one draft pick and uh, never really became the player they hoped that he would become. They wound up trading him away, but they traded back for him during 2003. He became a, you know, a, a fourth or fifth outfielder. But he had a triple, in, uh, RBI triple in the 11th inning of that of Game Three, and the uh, the Cubs won five to four. The thing I remember most about that game is, again, you know, one of my friends who I was with at that game um, couldn't watch. She sat staring at the ground for the last three innings, <laughs> and I'm thinking, you came all the way to Miami to watch this game, and you can't even watch it. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the result's going to be what it's going to be. I mean, if, you, if you're here to see it, you should at least see it. But anyway, they won that. You've got game. a couple friends that can't watch. Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, they won the next game eight to three. So, you know, here we are um, with one game to go, one win to go. Um, everybody's very optimistic that maybe they could finish it up in game five uh, in Miami and not have to go back to Wrigley Field. Um, but you know, uh, the Cubs ran up against a just hot Josh Beckett that day. Uh, he threw a two hit shutout and struck out 11. Uh, you know, Carlos Sombrano was not really on his game that day, but it didn't really matter. No one was going to beat Beckett that day. So, okay. So the Marlins had a, you know, a great pitching performance. The Cubs still had a three games to two lead. They're going home and they have Pryor and Wood scheduled to start. Um, So, you know, everybody was very, very optimistic. You know, how can they lose when they have these two guys going at home? So I'll set the I'll set a scene for you in game six. The Cubs took a three to nothing lead into the um into the eighth inning. And it was only then that I I was sitting in the last row of the right field bleachers, and it was only then that I looked behind me to see the street just flooded with thousands and thousands of people. And my jaw dropped. It's like, holy moly, where did all these people come from? I mean, you, you probably have seen the TV scenes of all those people, but to just look around and see that there were thousands and thousands of people crowding the streets around Wrigley Field, people who couldn't get into the game, but just wanted to be there and, you know, experience what it was like to see the Cubs finally go to the world series. Well, Obviously, it didn't happen. So, in 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 talking about the the, what, you know, I just call it the incident now. <laughs> but uh, you know, talking about what happened with uh, Steve Bartman um, supposedly interfering with the foul ball. Uh, to me, it wasn't really clear whether he did or not, or whether Moises Alou would have caught the ball or not. I mean, clearly, yes, he did. He did interfere with the ball, whether the ball was catchable, it's still up for debate. Um, you know, obviously with the nets around the field now, you couldn't do that. 
um, the, the fan could not reach out on the field. Um, I feel very badly for what happened to Steve Bartman. Um, you know, he got, he had to be escorted to home by a member of Cubs security. Um, he got harassed to the point where the company that he worked for, uh, he was an accountant. And I think he still is. In fact, the company that he worked for sent them, sent him to work in their office in London for two years to keep him away from all the people who were hassling him. <clears throat> so I feel, I, I do feel very badly for him. He didn't deserve all of the, um, all of the bad stuff that happened to him. But the thing, returning to the game itself, at the time, there was a runner on second and one out. So you're still, you're five outs to go. An incident has happened that has clearly shaken up your pitcher. If you, if you go back and look at the video of that play, you'll see Mark Pryor point his arm, you know, at, at that area. And, you know, as if, you know, to say, hey, that was interference or whatever. And he was obviously agitated. So what should happen right then? Right then, that is the one time where a major league manager can actually have an impact on the pace of a game. Most times, you know, the managers make the lineups, the managers make the bullpen changes and whatnot. And then the players have to perform. In that situation, the one thing that Dusty Baker absolutely needed to do, he needed to go out on the mound. You didn't have a limit on the time of mound visits back then. Um, he should have gone out there, settled on his pitcher, given his bullpen time to get ready, um, just slowed the game down. And he sat on his butt and did nothing. Um, there was eventually a visit to the mound by the pitching coach after that at-bat was over and prior had completed that at bat by walking Luis Castillo. So that put runners on first and second, uh, or actually first and third, because ball four was a wild pitch. So there's now runners on first and third with one out. At that point, again, at that point, you probably have to take prior out of the game. Why was a closer not warming up? Why was Joe Borowski not warm? If, if, if Joe Torrey had been managed, managing the Cubs back then, his closer would have been in the game for a five out save because in playoff games, Torrey did that with Mariano Rivera all the time. But Baker just, he, you know, so, of course, the next hitter was uh, Ivan Rodriguez. He singled in a run. It's three to two. The next play is the one that a lot of Cubs fans will say was what really lost that game. A double play ball was hit uh, to Alex Gonzalez, who was one of the better fielders in the league. He booted it. And, you know, of course, that opened the floodgates to a big inning. Now, there's no guarantee a double play is going to be turned on a, on a, a hit like that. You can't assume so. So let's assume that um, he only gets one out. Um, so if, if that's the case, the score is tied. And um, the score would then have been tied. And there would have been a runner on first. I believe a runner on first and second. So... Uh, the next hitter was Derek Lee, who of course eventually became a Cub. He doubled in. He doubled in two runs. Um, there was a sacrifice fly hit later. So even at, even if even if the double, even if the if Gonzalez had made the play and got one out, the double would have scored one run, and the fly ball that was a sacrifice fly would have ended the inning. So in the worst case scenario, with Gonzalez recording one out. The Cubs are only losing by one run going into the bottom of the eighth. But once they go down eight to three, 
it's, it's obviously over. And I can remember walking out of Wrigley Field that night thinking, this is, it's over. It, you know, they have a game left, but there's no way they can win it. Because when you have that kind of emotional upset and, uh, you know, an inning that is just came out of nowhere and didn't have to happen that way, um, you know, uh, psychological factors do affect players in that way. And even though the Cubs did wind up taking the lead in game seven, even though Kerry Wood actually hit a home run in that game, um, that at the time gave them a five to three lead. They had a five to three lead going into the fifth inning and couldn't hold it. So I, I got to think that the, you know, the psychological wounds of having uh, what happened in game six happen made it impossible for them to win game seven. I want to lighten the mood a little bit, if that's okay. <laughs> Um, I'm sure you may have seen this at some point. Have you seen the the Will Ferrell as Harry Carey? Yeah. Mm -hmm. no. How would Harry Carey have called the eighth inning of game six of the NLCS with the Marlins with the fan interference? The pitch. Foul ball down the left field line. Moses Alou leads. A, a fan got in the way. Oh, my God. Just the his face the whole time, his yeah. Except I think he would have said "Holy cow!" at least once. Probably, <laughs> probably. But you know, I mean, obviously that play has been made fun of um, and talked about incessantly for years and years and years. In fact, um, I was asked to be part of a panel uh, to be uh, part of a panel that was in the documentary that was made called "Chasing Hell." You're familiar with this? It was one of the ESPN 30 by 30. Uh, documentary that was made about this game and about the Bartman situation. I was, I was, uh, we were about six of us and I was called to this bar on the Northwest side of Chicago. And it turns out the owner of the bar, if you look at the video of the Bartman play, you'll see a guy in a gray sweatshirt. That's like two seats away from Bartman. That was the owner of this bar. And he calls us all over to there and says, you know, that could have been me. And so, but so we all talked about the play and, um, you know, they, it turns out whatever I said got left out of chasing hell. I don't know why, but, um, I'm trying to remember when that was made. That had to be about, I don't know, seven or eight years later. So, um, they asked us what we thought about the play and whether we thought it cost the Cubs the game. And I told them basically what I told you that, you know, there were a number of things that could have been done after that happened to slow things down, to stop, you know, the bigger should have come out. Alex Gonzalez could have made that play that could have changed things and none of it happened. And, you know, I think that was the, that was the thing that for a lot of Cubs fans made Cubs fans angry, you know, going back in Cubs history, they had collapsed in 1969 and the Mets, you know, roared through and wound up winning the world series. They had collapsed in the championship series against the Padres in 1984 I was there for that one too. That wasn't fun. Um, and, and, you know, it, it got to the point where Cubs fans were like, you know, this is just who we are. But I think after 2003, people got a little bit angry at it because at that point you're thinking, this is never going to happen because we're always going to get close to that point and um, something's going to happen. So I can tell you that when, 
The Cubs came back from Los Angeles in 2016, having a 3-2 lead in the NLCS and coming back to Wrigley Field for the last two games with their two best pitchers going and thinking, this is where we were 13 years ago. It took us 13 years just to get back here. But, you know, 2016 was a different story. I, I felt like they had a real good chance to, you know, to put the Dodgers away. And as it turned out, they scored a bunch of runs in the first inning of game six that day, and it wasn't. And I started – and when it got down to the last two innings of that game, they had a five to nothing lead. I started counting outs and my friends who were with me were just horrified. So you can't do that. Don't count outs. Cause we, you know, five outs in 2003, I said, it's not going to happen that way this time. So, you know, for me, 2016 erased a lot of those, a lot of those bad things that happened. Um, yeah. They're still now for me, they're still memories, but they don't have the, you know, real bad connotations that they, that they did when they happened. And also, uh, you know, when the Red Sox broke their drought in 2004, then the White Sox broke theirs in 2005. Yeah, I'm thinking, you know, the Cubs should have probably won in 2003 so that all three of these teams could do it in order like that. Yeah, yeah. Also, the Angels, who had never won a World Series in, in 50 years, won in 2002. Two. Yeah. So that would have been four years in a row of long droughts broken. Yeah. Al, we'll get you out of here on this. Uh, in that game six, uh, crazy chaotic uh last couple innings if you had to blame one person who do you blame for all that dusty baker it's not just there you know there's a couple things no first as i mentioned he probably should have taken him out earlier in game two yeah instead of having him throw 116 pitches in which case you know maybe he's rested enough that he can finish off uh game six uh, but certainly, I, I blame him for not going out to calm him down after the Bartman incident. Um, that's that's a place where a manager has to go out. You, you've just given the, the other team a real advantage and, and a play because Marlins players uh, were quoted later as saying after that happened, he said, you, you know, uh, Mike Redmond, who eventually came, became a major league manager, uh, was the Marlins backup catcher, you know, went in the dugout, told his team and says, Let me, let's make that kid famous. And well, they did. So, you know, but if Baker had gone out and slowed the game down, calmed him down, you know, maybe Mark Pryor settles himself, goes ahead and strikes out Luis Castillo, finishes off the eighth inning, and then Joe Borowski could have come and come finish the ninth. So you want me to uh, blame one person? I blame Dusty. So who would you rather go to dinner with, Dusty Baker or Tony La Russa? <laughs> That's a good question. No, actually, you know, even though I blame Dusty for that, I think I'd probably rather go to dinner with him. Um, he does seem like a real interesting guy and I'd love to, I would love to have a conversation, you know, not necessarily about that, but just about baseball and his life. And, uh, you know, he, you know, La Russa is a hall of famer as he certainly reminded a, uh, a, a <laughs> police officer in Phoenix. I'm so uh, but I, I was going <laughs> to, I think, uh, you know, I don't, I don't want to belabor that. Um, you know, Tony Lewis has been a great manager in baseball. I, I give him a, a lot of credit for, for all the, all the great managing he did it for 30 plus years, but Dusty Baker to me is a hall of famer too. You know, look at, look at all of the years he's managed. He's, he's got almost 2000 uh, major league wins. Now he's coming back to Houston in, in 2022. So he'll get across 2000. He's been to two world series, you know, and he was also a really good player for, for 16 years um, and played in a bunch of world series for the Dodgers. So, you know, to me, his combined body of work as a player and manager definitely makes him a hall of famer. There you have it. That is the story. And these 
are the basis stories. Was it 100% accurate? Yeah, that sounds right. Follow us on Twitter at The Basis Stories. Also, see all of our inebriated storytelling podcasts as part of the Stories Podcasts at The Stories Pods on Twitter. As our guests rewrite the past across various sports. Alcoholic drinks are consumed voluntarily by our guests at their own discretion. Please drink responsibly. You know, at the time, yeah, there was interference. Um, but I don't think at the time anybody thought uh, that too much of it. It was just, hey, it's a foul ball, so what? We'll get the next. It was only after all the other stuff happened that people went back and said, you know, that thing might have caused, uh, you know, all this stuff to happen. And I actually wrote an article I can send it to if you want a number of years ago. There was a very similar play in the Sandberg game in 1984 against the Cardinals. Uh, I can't remember right now who hit a foul ball, um, but uh, a fan interfered with Gary Matthews trying to make a catch in almost that exact spot. Um, I'll, I'll dig up the article and send it to you. It's really interesting. Of course, the Cubs wound up winning that game anyway. And so nobody talks about it. So talks about it. Yeah, so nobody talks about it. And the only reason I I didn't remember this from the time, but – that that game was part of a, a box set I bought. You know, great Cubs games, and that was you know that was that game was in there. So one winter night a few years ago, I just pulled it out and watched it, and it's like that's the Bartman play. You know, nineteen years earlier. Yeah, one thing that's like a a little bit of a kind of like turn, but you mentioned like so the the first of the games that that you really remember and that and that were really important were were both interleague games and so just thinking back to like now interleague is like nothing like i don't even like think about them like oh who 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 are they playing like you know what division is it whatever i remember like back then and when they started it that it was like i would look at being an al guy like I would look and be like, all right, how many games did the AO win? Because they were all they all happened at the same time. It was like a big thing. Um, I mean, even in eleven when when the Cubs came to Fenway, that was the first time that they had been there since the World Series in uh 08. And um that was like that was huge. And now it's like it's nothing. Now it, it's it's just kind of sad that like it it's fallen off like from that. Yeah, in some ways, you know, it's it because we're so far in the interleague play now, it's been 25 years. And so you're right in a lot of ways, it doesn't really mean that much. I mean, uh, I, you know, I hear when I hear talk of that Major League Baseball is think with, with might think about realigning the divisions to, you know, maybe put the Yankees and Mets in the same division or the Cubs and White Sox. I'm thinking not there's not a single person in Chicago who wants to see 18 Cubs White Sox games a year. I mean, they still get some hype and. <laughs> You know, especially now when, when both teams are supposed to be pretty good. Although, you know, the Cubs did their sell-off before this year's games against the White Sox. So that was not, you know, that was now not two good teams. It was one good team against one kind of bad team. But you're right. I mean, it's not it's not the same thing. It's, you know, now we really have a 30-team league where it's where, you know, we have a they're called American and National Leagues because, you know, it's historic history and all that. But, you know, to, to be playing, let's say the Cubs playing the Twins or even the Cubs playing in a, a team, you know, not in the AL Central like the Blue Jays 
or the Texas Rangers. It's just, you're right. It's just like another team. Baltimore is one of my, it was the first, the second park that I had ever been to and, and comparing it to from Fenway. And this was like around that time as well. Like going from Fenway, like cramped old, like everything to Baltimore, which was like brand new, huge concourses, like all of that. Like, I love that park and, and that little inner Harbor area um, right around there too. It's a great, it's a great trip. Yeah. And I actually went back, I went back there in 2017 to see the Cubs play again. And it, it really, you know, they hadn't made a lot of changes, but the, mm-hmm. the place holds up. I mean, the fact that it was 25 years old and it still looked new and clean. And, and I really like that park. And one thing you, you may or may not know about uh, Camden Yards is that they took, they actually took cuttings from Wrigley Field Ivy and they're growing up the side of one of the bullpen walls. Oh, wow. Which is no, pretty, which is pretty that. cool. Yeah. Do That's you, cool. Why did they, do you know why they, like, was there any reason? Well, like, one, of the, one of the things they did when the architect was, was building Camden Yards is they came to Wrigley Field because they wanted to know, you know, how this old ballpark had survived all the years and what kind of features they might want that would, you know, would fit in. So that's one of the reasons you see a brick wall behind the plate at Camden Yards. In fact, you see brick walls behind the plate at a lot of these new ballparks. And that's Wrigley Field started that because that's what it that's what it had. And, um, you know, we, we really have Wrigley Field now. And, of course, they've spent they spent over seven hundred million dollars renovating it. Uh, and the all, reason we have it now is kind of historical accident. Uh, when when PK Wrigley owned the Cubs, he was kind of a hands off owner. He did maintenance to the ballpark, but didn't really do any upgrades or anything. Obviously, they didn't put lights in until after Tribune Company bought the team. And you know, if 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 there had been any other person owning the Cubs in the 1960s, they probably would have moved like all the other teams did in that era into a new ballpark, like you know the the multi-purpose stadiums like Riverfront Stadium and Three River Stadium and Bush Stadium in St. Louis, um, because that was the thing that everybody thought. Well, if we build one stadium for baseball and football, it'll be, you know, it'll be, it'll be fine. You know, then we don't have to build two stadiums. And of course, what they found out is that the building one stadium for two sports meant it was no good really for either. So that's why all these teams left those stadiums, you know, within the last 20 years. And everybody now has a separate ballpark except for the one in Oakland. And they're looking to get out of that. But um, so, you know, Wrigley Field just kind of hung around and hung around. And I, you know, doing some research into, the history of Wrigley Field in the late 1960s, some newspaper writers were calling it ancient. It was 50 years old. <laughs> Ten years later, uh, you know, they were calling it the, you know, this beloved jewel of the north side of Chicago. So there was a, a change in perception between the late 1960s when it was looked at as, you know, this old building they should knock down, and the late 1970s, where you know, people maybe were starting to think about you know keeping history and restoring history, that it became this beloved place that people wanted to keep and when the Ricketts bought the Cubs in 2009 you know they made one of their first things that they were going to you know renovate Wrigley Field and um, you know they did they did a great job I think uh, you know Wrigley Field is now they've saved all of the best parts of what makes Wrigley what it is and they've modernized it for both fans and players so that it can last maybe another hundred years. Absolutely. I was I was deciding whether to um let you have that kind of like nice bow tied with like demons being erased or or ending it with anger depending on my Cardinals fandom and how mean I want to be. <laughs> the episode, so. hey, you know, it's really up to you. This is your thing. I mean, you can. You can I know. I get to. 
I get to decide in editing. So there's both. You know, there's see both. Cooler there heads was, can there was there was anger for a while. I mean, there was anger in 2007 when uh, you know Lou Pinella decided not to use um, uh, Carlos Zambrano in relief, or not to let Carlos Zambrano throw. No, sorry. In 2007, when Lou Pinella decided not to let Carlos Zambrano throw more innings in Game One because he was saving him for Game Four, which never happened. <laughs> and then in 2008, when you know the Cubs roared through the best record in the in the National League, and uh, the Dodgers had the worst record of anybody in the postseason, and it's 2008, it's exactly 100 years, it's supposed to happen now, and then they went in and got swept by the Dodgers in in the division series, and and really put put up a very poor performance in that that whole that whole division series. I mean, I had plans to go to L.A. to see the division series and decided not to go. It's like, why do I want to do this? Yeah. I mean, so that was kind of the attitude. It's like, well, they lost these first two games. Sure. Could they come back and win the last three? Yes. But I'm a Cubs fan. They're probably not going to. (laughs) So, you know, that, that was the kind of attitude we all had until 2016. All right. Three, three rapid fire, uh, dusty or Tony questions. Uh, who would you rather have managing your team in this 2000-ish era? Uh, the second one will be who would you rather have managing your team now? And then who would you rather have managing your team for one game, winner take all? Okay, so the first one, you're talking about uh, the 2003 uh, time. Yeah, around around the time, around the time that we're talking yeah. about here. Yeah. So around that time, I think I'd probably rather have Larusa. He seemed more in tune to, to that time. I, you know, I... I and you you read the book Three Nights in August. Mm-mm. You should. That's a book about how Tony Larusa managed a series. It happened to be a series against the Cubs in, I believe it was in two thousand three. So I think sometime in August. Um, and and the way he, he managed the, those games against the Cubs, but he seemed much more in tune with the game at that time. Right now, I think I'd rather have Dusty. I think. You know, in some ways, the White Sox made the playoffs in, in 2021 in spite of Larusa, not because of him. I think those players just thought, well, you know, here's the heart, heart, heart. here's the cards we got dealt. Uh, we don't need this guy. We're just going to go win anyway. Um, for one game, boy, that's a tough one. I, you know, I, I think I'd probably have to just edge towards Larusa because he's won World Series titles and Baker hasn't. 